Hey folks, welcome back to Wandering Into Wellness. Hello. Finn and Lydia, your usual familiars. And in, in between us we have our fave, our like you might remember from last year where we talked a little bit about ketosis, we talked about like diabetes a little bit. Um, but today we're here to talk about, with Robert Kirk, the issue of meat eating. Yes. Both for the planet, looking at the environment, but also for health. And where are we with this? And particularly what's happening with the vegan trend? So controversial topic. You know, everybody's seen uh, all of the, the, the films that, are, that have come out in the last like two or three years that are like really pushing the vegan agenda as being scientifically, evidentially the best thing for the planet. You don't agree? I don't agree. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. And I think um, if we do move in that direction, there's some really important things we need to be thinking about that um, could go wrong. And, 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 I, and I think everyone knows that there's, there's something dramatically wrong with the way in which we produce food. I think moving to vegan diets globally is not part of the solution. And that's because we actually need animals in the system. Um, and we also need to understand some of the differences between animals and plants and, and look at the system. So I'm coming at this as an ecologist. Um, I'm also someone that's been very much involved in the, uh, the politics of healthcare and agriculture. Um, I'm also very interested in human nature and there is a very strong link between um, prosperity and meat eating. Um, and we're also at a point in time in our evolution where the public doesn't take well to kind of top-down solutions. So yes. this top-down solution is coming from a limited set of data that gives us a, a view that there is a problem. We are seeing certainly an issue around uh, carbon emissions in agriculture. Um, does veganism solve the problem? I think not. Okay, so speak to that a little bit. So why do we need animals and why are we being told, that you're saying we need animals for the health of the planet, but why are we being told then that actually our, you know, our, our meat is what's causing the, the health of the planet to have an issue with carbon emissions? Quite simply, if you, if you take all of the data on global emissions from agriculture and put them in a melding pot and try and come up with a solution, things don't look good. But when you start breaking down what's happening in different subsets, you'll see that that is an irrational way of doing it. So, you know, 24%, um, if you look at um, IPCC data, 24% of carbon emissions are coming from our ag agriculture. Um, most of that is coming from industrial farming systems. It's not coming from agroecological systems. Um, you talk to anyone within... Uh, what's an industrial okay. farming system? What's an okay. agroecological yeah. system? Yeah, I think that's that, where you exactly go yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> what is the difference between an industrial farming system and an agroecological system? Yeah. An industrial farming system is basically where you take, you, you use food or food products as a commodity and you try and get economies of scale by maxing out that commodity. So you decide, I'm gonna be into poultry farming or beef farming, and you try and maximize your output. You don't necessarily value elements of the input or the pollution you cause or the carbon emissions you produce or what you're doing in terms of soil improvement to so that your agricultural land can become a carbon sink. So when we look at emissions, we don't ever see the balance sheet of really what's going on. And, and you know, so what, what is a farmer doing to actually improve their soil so it can actually, you know, become a, a sink? We don't see that. So um, 
from a point of view, what is an agroecological system? It's where you look at the entire ecosystem around agriculture. And what you're trying to do there is be as efficient and sustainable as possible. So you're trying to minimize your inputs and you're trying to optimize, not necessarily maximize your output. So your yield may be a little bit less, but it can be maintained forever and a day. It's a sustainable farming system. So it is basically the system that underpins organic in the real sense. It's great to see organizations like iFoam. The Soil Association have always been there. It's not called the Soil Association for nothing. Yeah. Um, so it's all about the soil, this thin layer of our terrestrial ecosystem for which most of it is currently used in agriculture is being degraded at such a rapid rate that if we don't start paying attention to this and looking at the plants, the animals and the microorganisms organisms that make it up, we have a problem. And that's what's happened with industrial agriculture. It's very much a product of the Western mindset where we basically break everything down into compartments. Um, and the reality is that we've had this system uh, in operation since the Industrial Revolution. It's only been around a couple of hundred years and we've pretty much decimated the planet because of it. So do we sort of maintain a plant-based way of eating as say Eat Lancet is suggesting, this is the big two-year study that's been done by the Eat Forum, um, combined with uh, a number of experts, both in sustainability and in nutritional science. And it's kind of desk-based research. Um, many of us who've been more at the, um, if you like, the uh, at the coal face of agriculture will say, this doesn't make any sense. You know, we've got marginal lands that can't be used for arable crops what are we doing there? And actually having a livestock system within that that is working alongside agroecological principles can be the most efficient way of doing it. But look, it's a gross problem in education though, right? So I've, we've been, we were farming organically on a small holding, producing beef in a, what unfortunately became a terribly unsustainable way. Because essentially I, was, I kind of sucked into this thing of subsidy-driven agriculture on a small enough farm that we could only really keep 11 uh, 11 animals, 11 breeding animals, and their offspring in any one year. Um, the, I mean, the, the, the sales quantity from the entire thing is like less than 20,000 years. Or like, it's like 11, 12,000 on, on a bad year. Yeah. And then, like, I'm seeing my neighbor's cattle, or my neighbor's, my neighbor's grass, which is springing up earlier because he's spreading out his slurry, he's putting on MPK fertilizer, and we're all getting very jealous of the guy next door, and we're trying to do the organic thing. So where, where do you start in that system to, to intervene if you want to, you know, change it, like, with, without turning everyone vegan? Well, ba basically, a mixed cropping farming system is the only system that really can exist and, and it's a matter of scale so it sounds like your problem was actually it's too small and it possibly wasn't diversified again you were into beef farming you weren't and and actually having a community farm system this is one of the problems with with land ownership as, as it's happened it's yeah. it's led itself to large-scale industrial agriculture, agriculture. Yeah. but but um, but actually if you look at the sustainable agroecosystems they are basically communities working together looking at what is the optimum part of that environment there will be parts of your land that actually may have been better for horticulture yeah yeah so so um, you know deciding that you're gonna beef farm or dairy farm or um, without, without thinking the, about the agroecosystem yes. that you're working in yeah. 
um, doesn't necessarily uh -huh. make sense. So, so, so how do you, where do you start then to start to intervene, like to actually make changes? Like within, without going back to the Stone Age in terms of agriculture, how are you going to convince farmers in Ireland, for instance, or farmers abroad in Europe, uh, without looking at you know the, the the types I know the types of systems you're probably looking at from a sustainability point of view are in sub-Saharan Africa that sort of area whether I don't know those I mean, are I, the I, systems that I've I, I worked on but but um, as, as an academic I was very much involved in sub-Saharan Africa um, but I also worked on very large-scale um, cotton farming systems in Central Asia and, and that were that were that were actually um, extraordinary they, they were the bit the largest scale effectively organic but non-certified organic cotton systems because they, they, they were putting huge amounts of pesticides in up until the 1980s and, uh, and then they built a, a kind of natural system with loosened intercrops and they had biocontrol factories and releasing um, different natural enemies into the farming system wow. and suddenly you could see a, a system that had evolved behind the Iron Curtain that was sustainable with cotton and um, my professor from Imperial College, the world expert in um, cotton pest management we went out there together and when he saw it with his eyes he said you know I didn't realize this was possible wow. and um, and it was working at scales the fourth largest cotton producing place in the in the world but the agrochemical companies wanted to see the system fail um, so that they could actually start using pesticides and uh, but um, Yes, so I mean, agroecological principles don't necessarily mean that you have to be certified organic. It's, um, I think that the focus is really on the soil and there are, you know, outfits like Soil and More that have developed a whole series of tools. I would say that's the starting point. The starting point is looking at your soil, really understanding your soil to understand your um, agroecosystem to find out what is the best things to grow there or, 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 to, or to cultivate. Um, if you look at community farming systems, so this is moving more to a sort of regional approach, um, it's, it's a question, and this is what we always used to do, is we will divide up labor and resources to make the best use of the land, but sustainability has to underpin it. Why? Because if it's not sustainable, you will deplete your soil and you won't be able to feed your grandkids. Yes. So, you know, sooner or later, you've got to come to grips with this. And it's, it's not about going backwards, it's about going forwards. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'd look at what Soil and More are doing as an outfit around the world. Um, they have tools that farmers can use that really help them to understand their soil. If you think of soil improvement as the starting point, yeah. everything else yeah. you can build, like, like building a house with so solid foundations. Can you go on, go on? Uh, I just want you to explain a little bit more for those of us who don't come from, say, a farming background, who don't understand. What, what the message that I keep getting from people who are really hardcore vegans is that they're saying that it takes so much water, so much energy to sustain animals that the whole, half the world is starving and if we just got rid of the animals and just focused on crops we'd be able to feed all the planet and it would be so great. Yeah. So is what you're saying that we need to produce less animals or none or Those, only animals? Yeah. Keep it the, those data essentially come from industrial farming systems, particularly beef farming systems and absolutely it is the most extraordinarily inefficient system. Um, so you are, if you like, flattening areas of the Amazon rainforest, you're growing your soil there, um, you're taking maize from North America, you're then shipping it across to Europe so that you can give your livestock foods that they have not evolved to consume. 
um, the amount of energy in that process, and then obviously if you look um, overall at emissions versus you know sequestration, it's a nightmare. But that's an industrial beef farming system. Um, doesn't look so great for for pig farming either, but. There are plenty of examples of agroecological beef farming and agroecological um, poultry and, and pig farming. Same thing applies to fish farming. You know, we are damaging our environment with the intensiveness or the intensity of our fish farming systems. And there are ways of doing fish farming. We can't all eat fish from the oceans anymore, but we can do it in a more sustainable manner. Um, and um, so, yes, those data um, don't look good at all, but that doesn't mean that we can tar all forms of beef farming or, you know, pork farming with the same brush. We can't. And there's plenty of examples of it being done really sustainably. And so, and so why, like, if the choice is factory farming or everyone turns vegan, then everyone turns vegan. Well, but this is like a third way, yeah. is it? Well, you, you could, uh, so let's look at a, an, an example of what would happen if everyone went vegan. What would we do with the land? So we've got this huge amount of our terrestrial ecosystem that's taken up with agricultural land. We could plant trees on it. From a carbon sequestration point of view, it's a great thing to do. Um, and, and obviously we can move into silver culture and agroforestry. Really, that's a great thing to do and we should be doing a whole lot more of it. Um, however, the reality is that if you look around the world at the places where the problem is at its greatest, and of course, you know, China will sit at any list that you look at in terms of carbon emissions. Um, uh, then you've got places like Russia. We're also going to be experiencing the fastest population growth in sub-Saharan Africa in the next 30 years. Um, I mean, I, I, I've spent a lot of time, I was, I was born in, in East Africa, and spent a lot of time working in, in, in Africa. Um, the relationship between prosperity and meat-eating is something that's not going to suddenly disappear. Right. Um, this, 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 the, the, the vegan consciousness that's driving the trend at the moment um, is not something I think that will catch on in a big way in, in China it's or Sub-Saharan Africa or in Russia. It's, reflection, it's a reflection of a society that's disconnected from its food source in a big way, isn't it? I, I believe so. And, and, I, and I think obviously you have to measure up the, the animal welfare side of it any kind of factory or industrial farming system is not going to be kind to animals. That needs to change. Um, and um, you know, one of the things I talked about yesterday was really trying to understand what is different between animals and plants to say from a, an ethical point of view, because we've got environmental issues, we've got human health issues, and then we've got a whole ethics question around it as well. And I, I feel very passionately about this, that, that um, in many respects, plants are just slow animals. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they really are. They, 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 they have this extraordinary defense system that has been built up because they are sessile. They're stuck in the ground there. They've got to have complex defense systems. Um, what we see from a health point of view is when people transition to a vegan diet, particularly when they start putting vast quantities of, of plants into juices and consuming it, we start to see the body going, do you know what? I don't understand all this chemistry that you're putting inside me because it's too much. Um, the signals are too great. And that can start to create, we're seeing now a lot of people who've, young people who've turned to veganism, starting to experience 
you know, digestive problems, intolerance problems. We see more autoimmune disease where the body cannot distinguish between self and non-self. Okay, that's an interesting one because that's an argument that comes up a lot and, and people say, well, look, where are the studies? Are there studies that are really showing that on a broad scale that we're seeing that? They, I mean, they are, it's more clinical data. So okay. the, the, one of the things that's happening um, clinically is that we're seeing from a, a, a dietary point of view, the, the kind of diet that helps people to get out of that is a carnivore diet. And so car carnivore diets are now becoming really popular. There is no evidence in my book that this is a great long-term diet, but taking the plant signals out of the equation um, for a period, it may be a three-month period, and then slowly reintroducing them, often at a lesser dose, um, can actually be, can, you know, resolve all the associated problems. Go on. So, I know that loads of the people who I talk to who are really into veganism, they look at people who promote the vegan message and who are really muscly and really fit and full of life and jumping around the place and they're going, well, but they look great and they're having a great time and they're causing very little harm. You were saying that it's going to their bodies and it's causing digestive issues. How come they're having such a great time? Well, uh, you know, first of all, it's not necessarily representative of all people. So there have been a number of uh, very outspoken um, vegan influencers who have actually had to put their hand up and said, you know what, guys, I've reintroduced um, some meat into my life. Um, um, do you know what? I'm not great at influencers. They're, oh. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. yeah, yeah okay. I'm so sorry about that. That's I'm right. sure you yeah, can we'll, flash we'll them up on the, the screen. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, but but um, no, I mean our, our team has been following um, quite a few of these people who, who've um, changed their mind. What we're seeing, because we're very closely aligned to practitioner associations, a huge influx over the last three years of people who are coming in with these digestive issues. And, um, and also we're seeing around the world, um, particularly in the States, the, the growth of the carnivore movement. So if you look at the LCHF, the low carb, high fat, um, clinicians who are using it for diabetes control, um, they have seen often people who have been on vegan diets resolve issues. You know, anyone who's a vegan, generally speaking, you know, on average, the carbohydrates as a proportion of total energy intake is often somewhere around 55 to 60%. So it's difficult. Um, the, 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 it can be very useful to start increasing your fat. One of the most dangerous things you can do is keep your fat intake very low and be a vegan. I mean, you're really not getting enough healthy fats. And of course, there, there are, I, I passionately believe you can be a healthy vegan, but you need to be a wise vegan. Um, and in fact, um, Mel, Mel and I have just recently written a book um, called Vegan Adventure that's going to be out shortly as, a, as, a, as an e-book that's all about looking at all the different aspects of veganism that, that you can actually are within your control. But you have to understand lectins and you have to understand oxalates and histamines and you have to understand some of the plant chemistry that you need to get right. You have to be looking at your response to those foods and um, really be very, very aware. So what's the, your message then in terms of like volume of meat consumption, when, how much, what type? What, what, do you have sort of fairly structured recommendations yeah. at this stage or is it just questions? No, our, our, our food for health um, guidelines have, have um, 
certainly suggestions that, that you know, depending again on, on your age and, and also how much physical activity um, you're taking, probably around about 20 to 25% of total energy from protein. Now, if you decide to get all of that from plants, you're going to struggle unless you're taking, you know, a, a plant protein isolate. Um, and, um, one, you know, if you look at the, the development of cell-based agriculture, which is, um, you know, if you like, uh, you know, lab-grown lab -grown meats, you take stem so cells from... Thing, sorry, you're, just to clarify about that, okay. you're talking about, like, vegan burger things, is it? But it's no, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's creating muscle in a test tube, essentially, in a Petri dish. So you're taking a stem cell from an animal, and that stem cell is then being grown into muscle fiber. Now the reality is if you look at um, healthy meats, they aren't just lean muscle. You know, the, some of the healthiest pasture-fed animals are you're actually eating marble meats. So if you look at the, sat the saturated fatty acid profile in those marble meats, that is actually very good for the human body, um, assuming that the animal hasn't been fed full of, you know, hormones and, you know, medications, etc. Um, and, um, and so, if we look at the profile and we look at the minerals of a pasture-fed animal, that's that's why people often who start reintroducing that kind of meat into their diet start to feel much better. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean red meat. There's very strong epidemiological evidence studies from human population saying that red meat will increase your um, all-cause mortality, more heart attacks, more stroke, more cancer. Um, those data are based on factory farming systems. Okay, so so um, and and also there's plenty of data just to suggest also we do so much damage not only how we raise the animals it's also how we cook the meat. So there's very clear evidence that say the polyaromatic hydrocarbons, the chemicals that form when you singe your your meat and you know you can then cross-link your sugars because we're now putting so much sugar into our savoury foods, particularly if you eat out, and that's another thing that. No, at no time in our history have people had so many takeout meals. I mean, yeah. people are eating more and more meals away from their home that have a whole bunch of things, including sugar. Um, and then we, we want everything blackened. When we blacken our foods, we know that we create a whole bunch of carcinogens. So you've got all these confounding factors that get in the way of the, the data. So, you know, when you see red meat is a problem, you're actually looking at people eating a bunch of overcooked hamburgers because that's what they're eating when they're out there they're not eating you know beautiful steaks that are lightly cooked from a a, a, a grass-fed animal and why is it then that the science is so conflicted because what you're what you're saying sounds just like uber simple and like very straightforward and like black and white why is it then that the studies that come out that show that veganism is the way to go is it like what's the agenda why like why are people not able to find out the real truth of this thing that you know there is no such thing as a truth and and i i i hope i wasn't making out that the science is really just black and white okay um essentially we have limited data on the whole picture and it's that paucity of data that actually allows so many competing views to exist. So we all come in there with our biases and our own opinions. But at some time, you've, you've got to try and understand where is the empirical data. And in my view, the empirical data in farming is on the land, and the empirical data in health is in the clinic. And so we spend a lot of time looking at what's happening there. Now, you talk to any 
farmer who's, you know, basically rearing animals on marginal lands, they'll say, well, you want to grow arable crops here, you want to grow vegetables, forget it. You know, this is my livelihood. This is what my family's been doing for centuries. Um, and, you know, it's a sustainable system. Um, so, and if you look at, at clinics, that's when I was talking to you about some of the health problems that we're beginning to see. This is a, a rapid change. I mean, the, the escalation of autoimmune diseases um, is happening very quickly. A lot of it's got to do with industrial food production systems. That's from how you grow the plants. I mean, many people believe that, you know, hydroponics is the way to go. I don't believe it because I believe you have to look at the soil as the fundamental substrate on this thin layer we have around, around the land on our planet. We've got to look after that. Um, a plant that grows in a hydroponic system can never have the full association with um, microorganisms, yeah. with minerals that it would have if it was growing in a, in a, in a living soil. Um, and of course the living soil is not just a place that grows the plants or um, supports livestock. It is a really important part of the ecosystem for nutrient cycling. Um, and, um, you know, it's no surprise that if you want to have a really healthy uh, vegetable crop, it's difficult to do it without putting pee and poop from animals into the system. Yeah. You know, animals are always part of the system if you're going to have a really healthy, viable system. Yeah, so t talk about that a little bit, because I know there's, there's some interesting like research around what large grazing herds used to do in the past. And, and can you speak to how that had an affected soil and why that's such a necessary yeah. thing? Yeah, the, the, the Alan Savory approach, which is contested by, by some people. Okay. Um, but, but I mean, there, there is no doubt that, that large herds of grazing animals um, were able to understand how they could manage an ecosystem. I mean, humans are not great through, through we're not great at managing ecosystems essentially because we don't have to. We, we always look for a technological solution. And it's a bit like, you know, now, now we're starting to really understand, yes, we've got a problem with carbon emissions. How are we gonna sequester more carbon? So most of the solutions that we're looking at are about how business interests can find a way of grabbing that carbon out of the air, um, or believe it or not, push it further down in the bottom of oil wells so we can get more oil up, and it's a cheaper way of getting oil out to produce even more emissions. But there's, you know, we're generally looking at a technological solution that will benefit, you know, one industrial partner or another. And, um, and that's not the way ecology works. Ecology is this fluid interplay between different living organisms that's about trying to make sure that the next generation are able to survive. So if you like, um, sustainability is built into the DNA of animals and plants. We're the, the one species that seems to disregard it. Look what we're doing to our planet. Look what we're doing to our health. I think the, the convergence of this dual problem with human health is all these preventable diseases that we are creating combined with an environmental crisis of lack of biodiversity, um, excessive carbon emissions and, and greenhouse climate change effects is actually a wake-up call for many people. And That's it's, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and I don't think there will be a magical technological solution. Technology will help us understand the problem, but the solution is actually working with nature, not against it. Yeah, because the instinct is like with 11 years to stop heating the planet up, like that's kind of, the, and that's conservative, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, one and a half, yeah, 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 one and a half degree <laughs> shift. Yeah, it's... So, is, is it 
feasible to, I mean, my instinct is to reach for technology in that situation. Like, is it feasible to, to make the sorts of reversals you're talking about in terms of agricultural methods in 11 years? The, the, the bottom line is it, it, it would be just about feasible from what I can gather from experts working in that area. The fact is that um, we, no one is moving quick enough, and that's Greta Thunberg's um, complaint. Um, and, you know, she gets nice applauses. Um, and uh, no one is moving fast enough to do that. And um, we've got to be simultaneously engaging in massive tree planting operations. We've got to see a sea change in the way that we produce food. Um, I still believe the public can do a lot. I mean, in, in, in the Western world, there, there is a desire. And I think, if you like, the, the interest in veganism is part of that change. But if we continue to go down the factory farming, industrial farming route, I think we won't make it. Um, from a human health point of view, I think we still won't be that healthy. Um, from an environmental point of view, if we don't start improving our soils, um, we're not going to make it either. And, and just a switch to veganism does not necessarily prioritize um, you know, soil improvement. So within the Eat Lancer report, um, there is no direct reference to transitioning to an agroecological approach. Um, that, I believe, is the, is, the, is the heart of the solution. And what, what is the Lancer Report telling us to do? Um, to uh, massively reduce our um, meat eating, particularly our red meat eating, yeah. um, to increase the amount of, I mean, it is the Walter Willett yeah. um, nutritional solution that's been on the table for the last 30 or 40 years um, with some nice okay, science around some, it. Some um, and, um, no flesh. Yeah, it, it's, it's got, you know, they issued a 46-page study. I think we were the first to come back with a comprehensive response. Um, and. Um, I mean, we've seen what we consider to be some serious flaws in the thinking. And this comes from the fact that the, the solution is a global solution, whereas it needs to be, if it's going to be an agroecological solution, it needs to be considered in the context of the different biogeographical areas of the world that you're dealing with. And you've got to take into account the politics, the economics, the geopolitics, um, consumer interest, behavior, culture, it's a very, very complex picture. Um, and just believing that you can magically do it by taking livestock out of your system is not the solution in my view. Okay, so what, with, with, it, with that in mind, what is the, the step for people to be able to take for you? And, and have you seen places in the Western world where that is beginning to happen, where people can take steps to actually improve the direction that you are proposing? I, th I think one of the most exciting trends is actually the development of the real food and regional food movement, where people are wanting to get food not so much from a supermarket, but as close as possible to the farm gate. They've realized that supermarkets are about industrial farming. Um, and they see huge amounts of air miles on these products and they don't have an understanding of the full supply chain or provenance. Um, people are wanting to eat food that is, you know, probably doesn't have a barcode on it so much. Um, and um, that is a, I think that's the beginning of change. I think it's a really exciting thing. I think there's been that and the other thing that's been really exciting is that people are, this, this emphasis on craft production which sort of came from nowhere. Yeah. Like it's a weird instinct. It yeah. sort of feels like that's the instinct we've had that's correct. That came from nowhere. That's become, like it's become trendy, which is the most useful way to make it like virally like happen. Yeah. And it's happening at the sort of rate that makes like, I mean, a lot of the products that are here, like Jamu I'm looking at down there, like these products are produced locally that have like a sense of like, 
a sense of place to them. Yeah. A sense of, like they're not looking to expand to go beyond a certain amount of production. You can't get more than your 30 bottles a week. Yeah. That's kind of where we need to be, isn't it? it, it exactly. Um, you know, it's about steady state systems, stable mm. systems, and they don't have to be on this continuous growth trajectory, which is what happens with you know, the globalization of the food supply is really part of the process of degrading that food supply. Along with that artisan to come this massive movement of like eating the animal no no and like all the awful meats and all of that kind of stuff. Is it possible matters. to get those benefits from a vegan diet? Yeah, is it possible to get all, all the nutrients um, as a vegan? Yeah. Um, you know, because we, we, we yeah, sort cool. of come into so, yeah. um, you know, I think it is possible to get all the nutrients that your body needs as a vegan, but you're going to need to supplement as well. Um, you're going to probably struggle with um, trying to balance your omega-6 to 3 ratio. Um, you should try and get an omega-6 to 3 ratio, which is less than um, 4 to 1. Um, and uh, the average Western person is currently about 20 to 1. Um, if you consume your um, ALA, your flaxseed oil that is giving you your ALA, your conversion to EPA and DHA is, is pretty low, and EPA in particular. So um, it, it's you know it's very very difficult to do that without having some fish oils, for example, in the system. Um, but um, but you can take all of these things as supplements, and even if you're taking an ALA supplement or a microalgal supplement, you can take a lot of it in order to get what your body needs. Um, you'll definitely be deficient in B12, but again, you can take um, B12 lozenges, 5,000 microgram lozenges, for example, um, trying to get all your one carbon metabolism nutrients that allow you to regenerate new cells in your gut, really important, so you need to have the right sort of B6, folate, B12 um, combination. Um, nucleotides are really important as well, so people who like eating awful meats do really well. That in evolutionary terms has been our primary supply of nucleotides and nucleotides are the the uh, if you like the outside uh, spiral staircase of our DNA and RNA that we need every time we build new cells um, we get vast amounts from awful meats but also from uh, fermented foods so if you, you know a vegan has to eat a lot of fermented foods to put more nucleotides in but you can also great um, supplement versions of, of nucleotides as well. And we need these nucleotides for cellular repair, for building new cells, um, and that really happens in our gut. We replace our gut lumen every three to five days, and we've also got this massive factory of, of bacteria there that are, you know, turning over all the time. While they make some key nutrients themselves, they also really benefit from the supply of additional nucleotides. So these, you know, we can do it, but this is why I talk about this notion of being a wise vegan. You've got to really know what you're doing. But it also sounds like if you're having to supplement that much, there's also a lot of production that goes into yeah, making supplements. Yeah, it doesn't sound that sustainable right? at It doesn't that level. feel like a sustainable option. Mm. It feels like you're taking in more businesses, more production, more air miles. More consumption. More well, consumption. Look, you know, this is, this is where you get, we, we touched on this idea of ethics before. And um, for me, as a scientist and an ecologist, I don't have the kind of distinct separation between plants and animals that some people have. Um, I mentioned this idea that you know plants are really slow animals, so um, they don't have brains, they don't have eyes, they don't have ears, but they see, they smell, um, you know, they respond. So if they do all of those things, don't they feel? 
and I believe that plants do feel. And, um, and then, you know, well, why are we just choosing to eat plants and not animals? So it, it comes down to, to not only animal welfare, but plant welfare. If you imagine that the communication system that plants use is via the root rhizosphere, so this is these complex microbial communities that exist around the root systems, they can communicate to plants, you know, you know meters away from them. If they're stuck in a hydroponic system, they can't communicate. The other way they communicate is through space, through air. They release a whole lot of volatiles. They communicate with insects and other plants. So they are able to communicate. Why, just because they don't have the central nervous system Tons that's the same as the animals, yeah. why are they so distinct? So my view is we've got to respect all life. And that's why a complete ecological system comes with plants, animals, and microorganisms. Um, the rest of nature is busy respectfully sharing itself with other parts of the system. Why can't we do the same? Good point to finish. Rob, yeah. thank you so much for coming on. Thank it's been you. great to chat to you. And yeah. yeah, we feel like we've got loads more questions, but we'll definitely revisit this maybe next year at yeah. this time and see where the conversations are going to. And if people want to find you, they go to uh, international.org. International. And you're um, also on Instagram, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somebody's not managing on Instagram? Yeah. Shameful. <laughs> so this man is the busiest man in the universe, so he might take two months to get back to you, but he will get back to you, and it'll be the most comprehensive answer you ever experience in your life. So it is worth asking the question. Uh, thanks again, Rob. It's great to see you. Thank Robert. you, Finn. Bye, Thank you, Bye, Bye, folks. Bye. Thank you. So, there we go.